Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Well, I want to welcome everyone on campus and watching online as well. My name is Ben Seaman, and I serve on staff as our lead minister. We're in the end, actually, two more weeks left, which I've really enjoyed this series, and I hope that you have as well. It seems like it's been really encouraging to hear context of why Jesus says some of the things that he says. I want to remind our church today, we're, we're doing a vote of our bylaws, so if you are a member of RCC, we'd love for you to stick around for about five minutes or so uh, to complete that vote with our elder team. Let me ask you a question. Uh, when you hear the phrase wine country, where do you go? What, 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 what country, what city, what state, where do you go in the world when you hear the phrase wine country? Maybe for you, you go to Italy, right? And maybe you're thinking of Florence and Siena. Maybe you were like, forget that, it's COVID. I'm going to California, Napa Valley. Um, if you lived in the first century and you uh, asked, where do I get some good wine? You would easily say, oh, that's easy. The city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was known for its wine and its vineyards that would just stretch for miles and miles and miles. Part of that was because they were surrounded, and this will matter in a few minutes, part of that is that they were surrounded by um, volcanoes, and so they had kind of volcanic soil, which helped with their winemaking uh, and their vineyards. Here's my only photo, okay? Uh, here's my only photo of uh, Philadelphia, but this is actually taken because it's in color, right? The uh, 5th, 6th century or whatever. This is it. You could hop out on your lunch break and visit Philadelphia like the way you would Sardis. Uh, but if you went to other cities like Ephesus, it would take you a day and a half or two days. So depending on how little your kids are, you'd probably like Philadelphia. In and out, you're done. We went on vacation. Thank you. Goodbye. Grab a t-shirt, right? Um, so th some other things that you need to know about Philadelphia is that if you lived in Philadelphia, you often felt insecurity uh, and uncertainty. Who wants to go there, right? You often felt insecurity and uncertainty. Why? Because what I've already mentioned, Philadelphia would get pummeled time and time and time again. Actually, um, in 17 AD, there was an earthquake so catastrophic, it wiped out the entire city. Now, what's worse, than an, what's worse than an earthquake? The aftershock. So the earthquake would happen. People would flee, try to set up. Earthquake would happen. People would flee. You kind of get it. And they would move. Civilization in Philadelphia moved out from the city, the downtown, so to speak, of Philadelphia, out into uh, the outskirts of the city near the wine country. Uh, Philadelphia was named uh, after King Atlas's brother, as you know. Uh, in the Greek, there's four words for love. Philos, Philadelphia, is a, it's a family love that families share. And so he named it uh, after his, his brother. Now, what's interesting about Philadelphia is that this city, although um, Christians were, um, they flirted a lot or could flirt a lot with politics, and Jesus was adamantly against that. I'm king. Uh, the, the Roman government is not. What's interesting about Philadelphia is you're going to start to see a marriage between religion and politics. And yep, you guessed it. It's not going to go well. It never does, not even in our country or any other country. Uh, this is why Jesus is part of a kingdom. Now, in order to rebuild Philadelphia, every time there was a stinking earthquake, Rome would send in a stimulus package of sorts. And so whatever Roman official uh, was in charge and would send the money to Philadelphia, 
They would, court, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of suck up to Rome and say, well, let's rename our city. And so one of those times, uh, they renamed it Neo Caesarea, which was the city of the new Caesar. And then they got a little smart, uh, or smarter, I guess I should say, um, where Flavian sent in some money and they named it after his wife. And so if you ask where you're from in, in Philadelphia, it, you kind of go, it depends. We were called Philadelphia, then we were called Neo Caesarea, then they named us after the emperor's wife, and now we're back to Philadelphia. Isn't it true in our own lives that when we feel insecure and uncertain, we wrestle with our identity? Politically, that was happening. Economically, that was happening with the city of Philadelphia. Then on top of that, the wonderful, I'm joking, Emperor Domitian, who was terrible to Christians. Uh, his reign was around when the book of Revelation was written anyways, and all that Mark of the Beast language is actually a direction towards him. Around 90 AD, he wiped out 50%, 50% of Philadelphia's wine country. And that would devastate any economy. And if Rome has to come in and save the day time and time again, the city could never build enough disaster relief funds to not need the Roman Empire. And so the Emperor Domitian comes in and wipes out 50%. Now, we don't really know why. It doesn't really matter. But maybe it was he wanted to take uh, competition away from Italy. Some, other some folks said he wanted to grow grain in the soil for his soldiers when they were traveling to war. But grain doesn't, very, uh, doesn't do well in volcanic soil. But for whatever reason, their economy was sort of slashed in half. Here's the other thing you need to know about Philadelphia before we jump into the letter. It had one of the largest Jewish populations in the Roman Empire. We're talking to use, you know, American common day language. We're talking megachurch big, all right? Uh, the synagogue could house, you know, one to 3,000 people. Now, here's where religion begins to marry with politics. The, the, the Jewish population was so large that Rome actually acknowledged it. Christianity to this point was still illegal. You could still uh, be, be uh, executed, thrown in jail, or worse, just socially cut off from your friends and family uh, and neighbors. And so to be Jewish in Philadelphia was to your benefit. To be Christian in Philadelphia was not to your benefit. And by that, I mean they didn't have to pay higher Roman taxes. They weren't forced to engage in imperial worship, right, where they're worshiping the political leader of their day. They didn't have to worship false gods and goddesses. But what happens? What happens, church, when you step out of that circle and you begin to follow Jesus? When I lived in Brooklyn, New York in my late 20s, um, I saw firsthand what happens. I had several Jewish friends, and when you convert to Christianity, for some of them, they were excommunicated from their family because Judaism is such a beautiful, rich uh, family religion. Now, surprise, they didn't have cars back then. People moved by their feet. And so if you, you need to go there um, uh, emotionally, I need you to build empathy here for these folks. So Yom Kippur, which day of atonement, every October, Jews still celebrate it today. We might call it um, 
the Day of Atonement. You can read about it if you want in Leviticus 16. We just believe that Jesus is the lamb that was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem for our sins. Imagine no longer being invited to bar mitzvahs or, or bat mitzvahs and, 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 and none of the Jewish ceremonial cleansing or worship. To be a Jesus follower, your protection, if, if your protection was like an umbrella that the Jews would hold from the Roman government, you're stepping outside of your protection. You are now on your own. And I think one of the words, or the word that Jesus wants to give to this church, although there could be many, is simply this, to be trusting, to trust me. I know it's hard. I know you're getting slammed. I know it's not to your benefit to be a Jesus follower. And oh, by the way, every time it is to your benefit in a country to be a Christian, Christianity tends to not very, doesn't thrive very well there. And this is a church that is struggling to hang in there and to trust King Jesus. Every week we've been showing you a, a story, a clip from someone in our church that has started uh, to step into one of the B values or has continued to do so. And so I want you to hear Rachel Yakey's story. Hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit about trust. So there's been quite a few times in my life where I've had to trust in God. And while that always seemed very easy, especially, you know, sitting on a Sunday and hearing a preacher preach about it, in actuality, it really wasn't that easy all the time. So there's kind of two experiences that I remember where trust was a huge factor. The first was moving up here to New England. We came, we interviewed, we prayed, we had really good feelings about it, but I was still really, really anxious. Moving up here, not knowing where we were gonna live, we had a house we had to sell in uh, North Carolina, it wasn't selling very easily, and I was stressed. Um, two days before we were supposed to move up here, I came up for an interview, uh, flew back home, packed everything in the van, stayed one more night in our house and then drove up to New England, still not having a job and knowing we only had 10 days to find a home while we still had, in my opinion, a perfectly good home in North Carolina. Um, as you know, because I'm here and Brian's here, everything worked out, but that trust process was stressful and very anxious for me. Recently, though, I've started a food program over the last couple years. This is our third year, and we do uh, book bags for students that they take home every weekend in Londonderry. And when this fell into my lap, again, I knew I was going to have to trust in God because it's way out of my comfort zone. I don't like talking to strangers. I don't like fundraising. I just like to be at home <laughs> and doing my own thing. So when I said I would do it, it's just because I wanted to help others. And I looked to God and I said, you have to do the rest because I can't do it. And God has blessed this program in so many ways. And it would take more than the time that Brian's allotted me to speak to tell you all about it. But I know walking away from both of these experiences is that I trusted God to a point when we moved up here, but I still wanted so much control over the situation. But within 68 hours of hunger, I let that all slide. In both instances, God has blessed us beyond measure. But now I've learned that I can let go of my anxiousness. And if it's something that God truly wants for my life, I can jump into the deep end of that pool and he's gonna be there. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing uh, your story. Yeah, you can clap for her, that's fine, yeah, yeah. I 
Selfishly, I'm glad it worked out because I really like the Yankees. They're really cool people. Uh, this is where Jesus begins his letter. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we, I, I preach from, like, this is my lifeline here. So I preach from this book every week. If you have one, bring it. If not, download your Bible app. Yeah, Ben, but it's on the screen. I get that. I want you to develop a relationship with God's word, which is to say, I want you to know Jesus. I don't want you to memorize facts in a book just to do it. I want you to know uh, Jesus. So in Revelation chapter 3, I believe it's verse 7, uh, the letter begins this way. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy, Jesus is describing himself, holy and true, who holds the key of David. Now what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is identifying himself per every letter. Then he tells the church, this is where you need to grow in, and this is, where, uh, this is what you're doing well in, and here's where you need to grow. Philadelphia is only one of two churches where Jesus does not rebuke them. It's a church that's doing really well because they learned how to suffer, uh, how to suffer well. And because of that, their light, which is to say their influence, will not be taken away from them. Jesus uses some really weird language. Uh, he calls himself holy and true, which isn't weird. The weird part is he says, I hold the key of David. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. The phrase key of David is a reference. Now remember, this is a Jewish, predominantly Jewish audience, although there are some Greco-Roman civilians that would have heard this letter for sure, no doubt. All, all seven churches would have had them as well. Um, so that, but the Jews would have picked up on this right away. This is a reference to Isaiah 22. Under King Hezekiah's reign, there was a, a chief of staff, so to speak, that was basically running a Ponzi scheme, right? Sort of uh, Madoc style. And God was not having it. In Isaiah 22, verse 17, God says, I will take him. His name is Shebna. I forgot to mention that. I will take him, whirl him around and around and around and hurl him into a far country, right? So like Jesus has got this dude on his shoulder and he just, boom, he's going to chuck him, right? Some of you are waiting to see me fall. Put me on YouTube, weren't you? Yeah, you were. Sinners. Um, so the phrase far, far country, C.S. Lewis, who's one of the best writers ever, uses it a lot. He uses it descriptive of hell. And yeah, you could say that here in the text, but uh, to, for, so if you're going to throw somebody, where are they going to end up? Uh, for, for this guy, it was Babylon. Far country. When, when, the, when the prodigal son leaves and he goes away to a far country, what the, which is true, but what that means is isolation, pulling away from God, and drifting. Wow, I don't know about you, but these, those are three real things that I struggle with even, even in this season. And so this guy is, uh, Shebna is replaced uh, by a gentleman, I'm going to butcher the name, Elikim, and this is what God says of him. I will place on his shoulder, here's a phrase, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus says, I'm like that guy. I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like that guy. Let me ask you a question, sort of, sort of you know, get, get out of theory and talk about practicality. Um, how many times in your relationships would you say that I have or you have the upper hand? Think about, think about all of your relationships. How many of you would say, in most of my relationships, or some, or maybe none, I have the upper hand? Now, marriage isn't about a fight for the upper hand. It's a competition of submission to outserve and love one another. But maybe for you, you'd say in your marriage, like, I'm not allowed to give my opinion 
Because maybe you're married to a narcissist or an overwhelmingly difficult person to live with. Maybe at work, your boss says, hey, team, what do you think? But they don't really care because they already know the answer. Or what about school, right? What about school where you're just trying to make your way into a friend group and you just feel like you don't have the upper hand? And even online, like you, you, you get asked to do stuff with other friends, but then, um, or, or your friends do stuff and then you watch at home online, see what they're doing and see their posts and their, and their stories. And you just feel like you don't have the upper hand. That's the church here in Philadelphia. They feel like they don't have the upper hand because in one sense, religiously speaking, Rome is sort of honoring this large Jewish population. But if you step outside of Judaism and follow Jesus and say crazy things like Jesus is God, which he was, although Jews still to this day do not believe in a trinity, you didn't have the upper hand. You didn't have the upper hand. And who knows, like once a stimulus bill or check or whatever came in the mail, and uh, Philadelphia rebuilt. Who knows if your business, now that everyone knows that you're a Jesus, who knows if you would even get part of that money. To be a Christian in Philadelphia meant that you really didn't have the upper hand, or so they thought. <laughs> Jesus, in verse 8, writes these words. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, I know that you have little strength. This church is tired from suffering. Yet you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name, which would have cost you your life in the first century. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, they are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet. And listen to this, acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also come for you, come for the hour of trial that is going to come uh, on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Then he closes with this. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one, now here's the reward. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Suffering can either grow our faith or kill our faith. You get to choose. You get to choose. Suffering can either grow our faith, like a greenhouse, or it can kill it. You get to decide. Isn't that incredible? So much of of the politics of 2020 with the election, the social unrest, COVID-19, a lot of that is, is projection onto a situation that you can give it meaning. And we, as humans, we'll go nuts if we don't ascribe meaning to something. But just, meet, just be sure that Jesus calls uh, what you think is happening the, the same thing. Is it possible for the church, for Jesus' church, to be at its best when it seems like the whole world is at its worst? I, I think so. I, th I think so. 
Um, I, I don't have to be the prophet. That's up to you to carry this out during the week. And it's up to me to carry it as well. I, I mean, everyone's leaning into Jesus on Sunday morning. Like, I get that because we're all here digitally and online. But, but I think it happens even during the week. Jesus says, I want to give you a few pictures. Number one, he says, I'm an open door. I'm an open door. Look at this photo uh, on the screen. And I just want you to let your mind wander and dream and race a little bit. When you think of an open door going into a vast field, what do you, what do you think about? Like what, what emotions, you know, when you were a kid and your mom and dad back in like the, you know, pre-technology, I'm bored. Okay, we'll go outside and play. Like boredom is not a curse. Like maybe it is today. When, when you saw an open door and you ran outside, what, what did that, what did that symbolize to you? Man, I, it, for me, it was like freedom, <laughs> freedom away from my parents. I could hang out with my friends, play football, kill the man. Um, I didn't have to be back until like it was dark and my mom told us to come in for dinner. It, it just felt like freedom and an open space. Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Jesus tells this church that they're going to a synagogue of Satan because there are people that go to church. Now I'm using kind of 2020 language. There are people that go to church and have sat under charlatan preaching and have slammed the door in their face and have, if not literally kicked people out, at least socially they felt like they were kicked out. And check this out. This is awesome. Jesus says, when I come, I'm going to make every pastor who pulled that stunt on you, make them bow at your feet and confess to you the whole time that they were a charlatan, the whole time that they were dropping the hammer, the whole time, every time you heard a sermon, you felt like guilt, anxiety, because you know who knows if I go home in a car wreck and I die, I'm just going to end up in hell anyways. The whole time they ran their Ponzi scheme on you, Jesus says, I'm going to make them, make them tell you, you know what? The whole time God loved you. Let me say that again, church. Jesus will forcibly make every pastor, every religious leader bow at your feet and say, the trauma that you experienced in your church, the fact that your husband abused you and you told the leadership and they ignored it because he's another dude in the church that is just a nice guy. So let's not, you know, make any waves. It happens all the time. I mean, there's five names coming to my mind right now of women that have experienced that. And the pastor did nothing, but knew, knew what was going, but did not. Jesus said, I will make them sit at your feet and say, I was wrong. <laughs> God loved you the whole time. I just didn't know how to deal with the situation. So I chose to be passive and I chose to be silent about it. Let me ask you a question. How many doors have been shut on you this year? It's been a hard year. How, how, many, how many of you would say that the friends that I had heading into 2020, I don't really see anymore, right? I know this is a reoccurring theme, but I mean, how many friends have we lost because of varying uh, opinions about, you know, COVID-19 and is a mask a Republican or a Democrat? Neither. It's a piece of cloth. Uh, what about the presidential election, right? People have slammed doors on each other. What about your marriage? I said this last week, like for a lot of couples, depending on 
kids and your schedule, it's really hard to maintain the intimacy. And we feel like we're living in the same house, we're married, but we're, we're at, at this point, we're just doormates than we are husband and wife. What, what would you say, uh, what would be a door that has been slammed in your face this year? Jesus says, I, I know that you're faithful to me. I know that life is really hard. I know that you love your Jewish friends. You love your Jewish neighbors. You love going to uh, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, celebrating uh, the new year and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which they just celebrated about a month and a half ago. I, I know that you love all that, but now I know that you've been excommunicated from them. And then Jesus makes this um, allusion or, or metaphor to Isaiah 22. You know what he says, church? How dare anybody, here we go, Tell your neighbor to wake up. How dare anybody throw anybody out of a church? I'm the God that puts whoever I want on my shoulders, and I will chuck them into the far country. You have no right to shut the door on anybody that wants to come to church. If you, in this moment, go, well, what about these kinds of people? You need to repent. It's kind of been a running theme if you've been here all six weeks. Jesus likes that. You need to come home. You need to reverse your thinking. We are too hung up on if I should invite this person or should I not. And you know good and well because our people have friends that aren't Jesus followers. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to believe that. If not, start this week, okay? Uh, I'm going to believe that our church knows people that no longer go to church, and they're not here or anywhere on a Sunday morning because for whatever reason, they got burned, or it was boring, irrelevant. It didn't mean anything to their life, or they had a need. They reached out to a church, and whether reality is reality, that's what perception is for, but the perception was they were not cared for, they were not loved well, and they left. And you know it. You know it. And Jesus has harsh language for that church, for those elders, for that pastor, if they were kicked out. Jesus says, no, 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 hold on, hold on, time out. This is my church. I throw out who I want to throw out, and I, want, and I allow whoever to come in uh, as I see fit. Now, if you think in that statement that Ben believes, well, let's just have total acceptance of everybody, you're right. Because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. I don't care how you vote, what you believe, how you view about relationships, or what you think about God. I want you here. Because where else in your week are you going to consider the ways of Jesus other than the church? Hopefully every day over coffee on your couch or whatever, reading, reading the Bible. There's not a litmus test when you come to Rockingham Christian Church. Just a temperature check because <laughs> of COVID. And I'm, I'm not going to be the church and I'm not going to lead a church and I'll kick out anybody that's like, I can't believe that that person comes here. Yeah, we're a church. We're not for the convinced. We're for the curious. And there are so many people that I know in New England. I've been here long enough that I love them. They won't step foot in the church. You ask them why? It's because how they were treated before. Now, is that what really happened? I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. But their perception is that they were hurt and broken. In John chapter uh, 10, Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. A gate mattered when you were a sheep because it was your protection. I talked about this 
when I first started here, when we did the I am statements, that a shepherd would put his sheep in the sheep pen, close the gate, and go in for a night's rest. If he does not close the gate, one or two things could happen. Another shepherd could steal the sheep, or someone local could steal the sheep, or even worse, a wolf could come and devour the sheep. Jesus says, I will be your protection. The door into heaven is only through me. Come and learn my ways. Establish your life on the Sermon on the Mount. Come and follow me, right? Jesus, Jesus will offend everybody equally, all right? It's going to happen if you stay here long enough. Uh, but he wants to love you and encourage you and admonish you and, and tell you that he's telling the church in Philadelphia to keep going, to keep going. Stop being religious. It's, it's not up to, you don't have to carry that burden. You don't have to sit in judgment by how someone does or doesn't live, right? The, the, the beauty of that is your heart should break that they're not in love with Jesus yet, but they're, study, but they're settling for lovers less wild than Jesus. Listen to me, church. Everybody in this world is standing in line to be loved, accepted, and understood. Is the church the first place that they think about when they think about that? You have to answer it for yourselves. I'm not you. I don't know your friends. I don't know how you present Jesus if you do to your friends. But Jesus says, I am the open door. Secondly, he says, I will give you a crown if you endure. Here's a photo of Michael Phelps in the uh, Athens Olympic Games. This is one of the crowns in the first century. That's why uh, Phelps is wearing this. It's a head nod to the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman first century games. And a crown symbolized that you started something, you worked towards it, uh, you trained for it, I should say, because the gospel isn't about works. It's Jesus' work on our behalf. And then you stayed faithful and you finished it. Jesus says, keep going. Don't worry about the Jewish community that excommunicated you. Don't worry about the Roman government that's handing, uh, standing over your back, looking over your shoulder, waiting to strike you down because you're not worshiping. It's God's and goddesses. Jesus says, I am the open door. I let in whoever I let in, and I don't really care what you think about it, and I kick out whoever I want to kick out. And I kick out people that when common people want to have a relationship with me, they deny them access. Thirdly and finally, Jesus says, I'm a pillar. I'm a door. I'm going to give you a crown, and I'm a pillar. Here's that picture again of um, these pillars. Now, the reason why pillars mattered uh, in the first century is because pillars would be constructed to stabilize significant buildings. Because pillars, if built well, could withstand, you guessed it, earthquakes in the city of Philadelphia. So what does Jesus mean by I'm a pillar? Jesus is our stability. Jesus is our stability in a world that is very unstable right now. Very unstable right now. And yet, we allow other things to give us stability. Like, I'm sick and tired of seeing people fighting online over politics, right? Or if their person didn't win, Jesus is still king. What does that even matter? Like, what, what does that, I'm sorry, what does that even mean? Because you've been talking politically for the last three and a half months. Where does your stability come from? Capitol Hill? No, from Golgotha, from a man who claimed to be God, died on the cross for our sins in our place, and yet I hope, and I don't hope, I wonder that if Christianity to the average American Christian is just some elitist, pie-in-the-sky, theoretical idea. Jesus says, no, I am your pillar. I am your stability. 
trust in me. Let me define you. The reason, listen, church, the reason why, now I'm talking about you personally, the reason why you feel feelings of uncertainty and you're scared and you're nervous is tied to your identity. Stop listening to the crap online, to the news outlets, to your friends that are dragging you down or, or criticizing you for believing or thinking other things. Stop! If Jesus is actually God over Rome and over America and the president, allow him to be your stability. Right now, man, right now. More than ever, I believe in the history of at least my lifetime, which is a whopping 38 years, I think people are more sensitive and open to the gospel if a church like ours is willing to invite them in. I do. I believe it. I, I believe it wholeheartedly. But we got to stop making Jesus as this bobblehead that we hang on the shelf and, and make, you know, random, you know, our theology is, you know, uh, you know like one verse every three weeks that, like, no. No, stop it. <laughs> no, Jesus is our pillar. He is our stability, not in theory. In real life, as you've lost your job this year, as friends have left you this year, have, as your marriage has ended in divorce this year, as, as, your, as your wedding that you hoped to have, a lot of people, but you could only have a few people because of covid Jesus is your stability. He is not a theoretical idea. And it's time where I prompt, man, I promise you, if the church just treats Jesus as a theory right now in 2020, man, church is going to get pummeled like it's nothing. It's nothing. Now is not the time for soft preaching and random ideas. It's time to know the word of God and follow Jesus and not a political system and not a theory and not a religion and not a denomination, but Jesus, the God man himself. On the pillar, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the name of my God. I'm going to give you the name of the city of my God. And listen to this. I'm going to give you my new name. Here's why that matters. A few weeks ago, I forget the church, he promised the church that there's this white rock, and under the rock is a name that he has for us. It's our new name. It's a name that we don't know yet, but when we hear it, it'll be familiar, and we'll just start crying and hugging Jesus, I think. At least that's what I'll be doing uh, without a mask on. And, and, but Jesus says, but I have a new name. I have a new name that you don't know yet. I'm going to tattoo it on you. Why does that matter to the church? Because it lost its identity. It's, we have lost our identity when we get stuck in uncertainty, when we get stuck in insecurity. Jesus says, keep calling, man, or woman. <laughs> I'm your open door. I'm your access to the Father. Stay faithful. I have a crown waiting for you. I will be your stability. I'm with you. Even when being a Christian in 2020 in Salem High School or wherever it is that you work or the neighborhood that you live in has no benefit for you, Jesus says, I'm worth it. Keep running the race. I have a crown waiting for you. And I have a new name from my father that I want to give you. It's a name that you don't have to be embarrassed by. It's a name that you can be proud of. 
And it's a name that will welcome you home. I want to close with Revelation 21, 1 through 4, where John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the whole city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, just beautiful imagery here, from God, prepared as a bride, which is us, the church, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, blepso, it means see. In baseball, we would say, keep your eye on the ball. Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Church, church, be trusting, be trusting. Love people well. Do not slam the door of the gospel in their face. I don't care what you think about them. It doesn't matter. Just get them to Jesus. He'll do the rest. There's a crown waiting for you. And Jesus promised to be your stability throughout this race. And if we do those things, he will not remove our light. He will not take away our influence. And people from years to come We'll hear of a church just off of I-93 <laughs> that when the world in 2020 was at its worst, Rockingham Christian Church, by the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that church was at its best. Let me pray. God, I just want to repent of the sin of uh, judgmentalism. If any of us in our church have have kept an invite away, uh, for, or not away, but from a coworker, a student, a neighbor, someone that we work out with or hang out with in various facets. Jesus, you really only care <laughs> about one thing. That's it. Getting people on your journey and deepening them. And we, we politicize and we romanticize and we worry about so many other things in church life, but the only thing that you care about, the only thing, is that people know that they're loved. They need a relationship with you, not on their terms, on your terms. Would we be those people? Would we be those people? Could we, if Jesus, if you're our stability, could we be someone's stability for them until they come to faith in you? Could, could you open our heart and our eyes to maybe one to three relationships this week, that we would maybe to have the, the guts to step into that. Jesus, sometimes depending on who you talk to and who you hang out with, there literally is no benefit to being a Christian in 2020. We get made fun of, we're told we're stupid, um, we're, we're old-fashioned, we're out of the loop, <laughs> but your love for us is more relevant than ever, and people need to know that they're loved by you. May we be that outpost. May we be that billboard. May we be that text message that relays to people the love of God. May we be faithful. And may we be our best when the world, as it seems, might actually be at its worst. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.